Welcome to Imperfect World. I am your host, Christopher Hobson. In this episode, I speak with L.M. Sarkassus, who has become one of the leading voices in critically reflecting on the ethical, social, and cultural consequences of technologies through his previous blog, The Frailest Thing, and current Substack newsletter, The Convivial Society. He is an exemplary thinker and writer, displaying nuance and care in how he navigates challenging questions about how we should live and act in a world that is increasingly not made to measure. His appearance last year on Ezra Klein's show, where they explored 41 questions for the technologies we use and that use us, was a wonderful example of how to think in a critical and productive way about these issues. Through his work, Sarkassus has developed what he describes as a humanist critique of technology which we consider in this conversation. In doing so, he often turns to dusting off lost insights from thinkers who have considered technology and society at other historical junctures, providing a different view on the present moment. I was glad to have the opportunity to speak with Sarkassus as his approach intersects with mine in productive ways, and his writing has been a valuable source of insight. Our resulting conversation, presented here in full, was rich and worthwhile and developed some thought-provoking themes as it unfolds. We reflect on the challenges of pursuing the good life in a world increasingly dominated by digital technologies and explore powerful points of overlap and contrast between different traditions and cultures. I found this a stimulating conversation and encourage you to make time to think along with us. For more information, please check imperfectnotes.substack.com and make sure to subscribe to the Imperfect World podcast series. I can be reached at info.hobson at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. So perhaps as a starting point, uh, with with my work, I've been thinking a lot about uh, this aphorism from uh, Adorno, which is "Wrong life cannot be lived rightly." And what he was really getting at was the way that the social structure uh, which we find ourselves in makes it close to impossible to actually uh, pursue the good life and to act ethically. And so I've been thinking a lot about this kind of dynamic of uh, what ethical action looks like in our contemporary context and have become increasingly convinced that a vital part of thinking about that is the role of technology. So as a starting point, um, maybe could you talk a little bit about how you think of the relationship between uh, technology and thinking about ethics or, or why we need to be thinking about these two things together? Sure, that, that's a, a wonderful question. And um, I, I'd say it gets 
I guess at the heart of my own interest in technology. Um, I think I approached it precisely in that in that direction. Uh, I wasn't interested in the uh, the technological artifact um, per se, no more than you know the next person, I suppose. Um, but then, as I began to make the connection between technology and the moral life, it it seemed like you know, as you said, uh, vitally important to think along this dimension, uh, because very often it, it did not seem to me that this was foregrounded by many people thinking about what it, what it means to live uh, a good or decent life today or to build a just society. Uh, I think that's changed a little bit in recent years, but uh, it was probably about 15, maybe 18 years ago when, when this question, this problem kind of presented itself to me. Um, Initially, I would say that the the scope of of my thinking was was fairly limited and just sort of focused on um, you know individual action, right? How how we're shaped by the tools that we use, um, it, you know, at the level of of the person. And I think part of what uh, drew my attention to technology is that I had, to some degree, my own thinking about moral formation have been shaped by uh, the virtue ethic tradition, which looked to practices and embodied habits as being kind of the foundational level of, uh, of, of ethical action, right, of, of, of character formation. And, and it seemed to me that if that's the case, then, you know, on the one hand, there was this, uh, at the time, I think probably by the um, mid-2000 aughts or so, um, this kind of an increasing awareness about maybe the kind of compulsive nature of our technology use. Um, you know, I think Nick Carr's uh, essay in the Atlantic in 2008 um, was a, a good example of this discourse and how it was growing at the time. And, um, and, and this idea that our habits are, are mediated through the tools that we carry in hand, right? That there's a circuit between uh, body, world, mind, and tool that seemed vitally important to how we perceive the world, how we perceive ourselves, the kind of action we're capable of. And then again, also the the habits that begin to structure, unthinkingly structure uh, the way we conduct ourselves. Uh, and so wanting to explore that intersection of, um, of, of action and tool and world and perception, those are the, uh, I think the kind of the general outlines of how I began to think about uh, the, the moral consequences of technology. And uh, when I, uh, I talk about this stuff, I, I usually, I like the phrase that, um, so the, I think the way I put it is that, you know, the, the technology is the moral, in, or excuse me, the material infrastructure of our moral lives, right? So I, what I'm trying to capture with that, um, which may not be as elegant as I, I think think it is, but is this idea that, you know, we sometimes think about um, the moral life as is almost a kind of intellectual uh, affair where I think in a lot of ethics courses, right, you have these dilemmas that are set before you and you just try to think through them very carefully and meticulously and apply the right critical categories. Um, but that, you know, instead maybe if we looked at what we're doing with our bodies, the way we're relating to the world and one another, that we might uncover a, a, an important dimension of, of the moral life at that level. Uh, and, and thus this sort of idea that, you know, it's, it's the infrastructure, which is to say it's what's unseen or unnoticed until something goes wrong with it, right? This is a one quippy way of, of defining infrastructure. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that that's, 
that's what got me interested in these questions. What continues to get me interested, uh, you know, what, what, what sustains my interest in these questions. Um, you know, I think maybe the the scope has expanded to some degree. You know, I've um, there there are deeper levels. I think in the, in terms of how technology shapes our understanding, our relationship to time, to place, as well as to the other and to ourselves, um, and how it how it uh, positions us uh, relative to the world and how we then experience the world. And so there, there are any number of, of avenues once this question about the relation between our tools and, and the ethical life or the moral life um, unfolds. And, and then to, to think about, you know, your, your uh, citation about Adorno, right, this idea that there are structures now that render the ethical life increasingly uh, challenging or difficult. Um, I think that that certainly has come into the uh, into the picture for me over the last decade or so. That uh, there's a way in which agency is is distributed and complicated. The way in which we're you know, trapped, I think, is not too strong a word in in systems that we can't fully uh, comprehend. Um, and the the scale at which you know we're we're asked to operate, and and the fact that we do sort of inhabit social structures whose ends have very little to do with the moral life or with the, a, a good life humanly defined, right? So, um, so I try to think about these things uh, with varying degrees of success, I suppose, but my, my own understanding has always been that what I'm, what I'm trying to do is think out loud uh, and hopefully uh, find that others are, are benefiting to some degree or can join into that conversation um, as I kind of seek clarity, as it were for what, what the moral life can look like in, in um, techno-modern conditions. I guess that, that would partly explain at least some of your interest in, in Arendt, perhaps. Uh, I think one of the powerful things that I take from Arendt is the, the kind of the challenges that, that come with trying to act politically to also... Um, think about what is what is right in the context of difficult circumstances and I certainly have been uh, reflecting and engaging a lot with the thinkers from mid 20th century partly because they kind of capture this dynamic the the primary kind of societal forces which are structuring and limiting agency in that context uh, are partly technological but perhaps not primarily or not in certainly not in the same way that we can think about it in the contemporary context but you have this dynamic of uh, how can you behave ethically in conditions not of your own choosing and one of the things I find really powerful about Arendt is is the way she kind of points towards the, the need to still try uh, even when the likely or possible success of one's out, sort of actions uh, are unclear. And one of the, the framing she has, which is people like to use it in a kind of simplistic way, but you know, her idea of dark times and with, with that kind of framing, what she pointed to is, is the way that uh, we didn't all of a sudden reach uh, 1939 and 
the horrors of the Second World War. This was a, a process of degrading of, of um, political discourse, a degrading of the way that we interact and talk to each other. And where this ends up and takes us is with everything that subsequently happens during, during the, the Second World War. But insofar as this was a process, it also suggests there's at least some agency or some possibility of trying to uh, push back, push back against it. Uh, so I, I wonder if also partly uh, at least one way of trying to act ethically in, in such conditions is a sense of awareness and understanding of the way these conditions uh, make it difficult for us to act. And so it strikes me that one of the things you're exploring is, is, is the ways that technologies or digital technologies are uh, making some type of behaviours more possible and other types of behaviours uh, more difficult. And the way that these can then uh, yeah, shape, shape our behaviour. And so then p potentially, for instance, the way that you talk about um, attention and engagement and the type of behaviours and interactions that these manifest. Yeah, the, I came to Arendt, I think, through the human condition. It was a text that was assigned to me um, and uh, immediately struck me as, uh, Arendt immediately struck me as a, as a thinker I wanted to think with uh, for in the long run, for the long run, um, she writes in that uh, in, the, in the preface. I think right. She says uh, that she's calling us to think what we are doing, uh, and and I think that's certainly. Uh, I, I took that as a kind of um, uh, a good motto or, or or slogan to to write with or write through uh, or, or through which to understand what I was trying to do. Um, and I think too about you know in in the human condition, but also in um, the essays that are gathered uh, in between past and future. Uh, this this idea that there's been a, a, a rupture in the tradition in such a way that we are um, we're unable to fall back on uh, older categories, uh, older templates that we might have had, um, and that we are. Uh, this this line that she liked to use, right? We're we're now engaged in in thinking without a banister, with nothing to lean on, to fall back on, and so we have to we have to actively think about what we're doing, uh, and and that the the thoughtlessness, right? The the, the danger is that we become thoughtless, um, and of course for her that that also paves the way for um, you know grievous. Um, uh, immorality and uh and and evil even uh, directly i mean she makes a link directly so so yes i think she's been um in, incredibly valuable uh to me in, in giving me a model of thought uh which i think is certainly what what she had hoped for in her own uh work um and and to 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 think with some of her categories as well so not only that the kind of overall project but um you know, I've come back to 
uh, her distinctions between solitude and loneliness um, to the, uh, the, the, the power of loneliness underlying so many of the societal disorders and creating perhaps even the um, uh, preparing the ground for totalitarian movements, um, her distinctions between the private, the public, and the social. Uh, there, there are many helpful categories that she offers us that, that are useful to, 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 um, to think with. And then just the, the approach that she brings and the awareness of the, of the necessity to, to think anew and to um, not, not rely on, um, to, to not fall back on a kind of complacency, complacency of thought. Um, and, and yes, and in the midst of, um, so I take that in part to be kind of the, the darkness of our times is we don't have the, um, the wherewithal to, to simply lean on what has been the case and that attempts to do so, uh, in fact, could be, you know, counterproductive. So in, in all the ways I've I, yeah, deeply valued her, her insights. So to follow up on that, you point towards the way that Arendt uh, really sees thinking and not thinking as as really important in terms of um, yeah the capacity for for human action and also what it means for what is possible collectively and. Uh, yeah, famously in, in Eichmann in Jerusalem, she points towards Eichmann's thoughtlessness as um, a vital part of explaining how he ended up being in uh, conditions where he committed acts which she judged as being evil. And so she points towards the real dangers of, of not thinking, and she sees thinking as an active process. Uh, and I've quoted this line before, but she, she talks about uh, unth unthinking men. Uh, you know, she's using the gender language, but un unthinking men are like sleepwalkers. Mm -hmm. So connecting that to thinking about the role that digital technologies uh, playing today, uh, could, could we maybe think a little bit about the ways that the technology, like these digital technologies are perhaps uh, encouraging or creating the conditions for either thoughtlessness or less actively engaging in thought? Yes. And, and I, so I appreciate on the one hand, her framing of thinking uh, as something other than or, or distinct from uh, mere problem solving uh, and and a kind of uh, I, I don't I don't think she ever describes it quite this way, but I you know I take it as kind of technocratic mindset um, that kind of just sees uh, the world as a, a realm of problems to be solved by the application of of technique. And so I'm kind of importing some stuff into that. But that thinking seeks for meaning um, and that thinking in, in this sense also um, allows us to uh, in, inhabit the perspective, the, the world from the perspective of another. So there, there are various dimensions to this, but it's not just sort of engaging your mind as it were, I think. Um, and then the other category that I think maybe I'll, I'll bring in into, um, into this question is this category of judgment, uh, which was you know, very important for her. And um, 
I know it was the last section of um, uh, Life of the Mind, which was published posthumously, but that section was incomplete. Uh, but but this idea that that we uh, we're tempted, and the, the reason I bring that up is I think one way of framing um, the the digital the the digital milieu, the milieu of digital technology, is that it it invites us to outsource uh, a variety of different human activities, and so I think the the in in the 1950s or 60s, as as evidence even in in the preface to the Human Condition, uh, thinkers like Arendt were, were concerned about the outsourcing of labor, uh, the automation of the factories, uh, and what that would do uh, to to laborers who who had you know human beings would become uh, had only uh, been able to now think of them as as laborers and, and now are are threatened with the with the loss of the very thing that gives their life meaning. Um, but that this this dynamic of of outsourcing to the technological uh, it, it hasn't stopped at the outsourcing of labor or the mechanization of um, of, of of human strength or um, or power, but that it has uh, now entered into you know more internal realms, right? So the outsourcing, uh, in some cases, of emotional labor. Uh, I, I'm thinking here of. Um, of apps that sort of promise to to help you remain mindful of keeping in touch with loved ones, or um, you know, the one notorious case of this that caught my attention a few years back was a, an app that kind of promised to send um, pre-written text messages to your significant other, so that they would be sort of aware of um, of your care for them. Uh, but even the outsourcing of intellectual labor, uh, and perhaps even finally the outsourcing of um, of moral labor, I'm not sure labor is the right word for each of these, right? But but the outsourcing of judgment, where we default to um, algorithmic judgments in place of of active human judgment, and and again, I think I think I'm sort of faithfully um, synthesizing some themes in a rent here, but but that also always to me seems to entail the um, the the outsourcing, if you like, of, of responsibility, which is another kind of vital theme in in, in her writing, uh, because action, right? This this supreme political um, virtue of of action, the conditions for action, for human action, entail uh, a measure of of risk. We bring something new into the world. Um, there's no guarantee that 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 the new will necessarily be good, um, and so we. We want, you know, there, there's, there's um, this risk involved in, in this ideal picture that she, she paints of a place where, where human beings can appear, can act, can, can turn the tide of human affairs in their, in their own realms. Um, but that, that also brings with it responsibility. Uh, and so I think in, in many ways, what I see um, as a recurring pattern in our digital milieu is, is the, the outsourcing of both judgment, but then also with it, responsibility. Um, and, and I think that that's one way in which I would uh, apply her, her thinking to our present context. And, and I think this, this is, um, this is various levels, right? So, and it depends on, you know, who's doing this, right? So the, the employer who deploys uh, algorithmic tools to sort through potential uh, hires, uh, there's of course the, um, much discussed danger of um, certain prejudices or racial prejudices being imported into the logic of the algorithm because it's trained on pre-existing human human decisions, um, and 
That's certainly the case. And, and I think that then, you know, beyond that, though, even the, the ability in certain situations to to say, well, this 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 is not my decision, but the decision of 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 the tools we're using, right? To outsource that judgment also outsources the responsibility. So I think that there's a there's a great da- there's danger in that um, danger for abuse, um, but also it it robs us of the I think the the necessity the the, the human desire to in fact make judgments, right? To activate this part of, of the um, sort of the, the, the moral life, right? The moral whole that is the human person. Um, and so at the various points where, where we are promised uh, a measure of efficiency, I think it's important to ask, you know, what, what is being um, automated as it were, what is being outsourced? You know, where, where are we being invited to give up some important dimension of, what it means to be a human being living in society with ourselves and with others. Uh, and, and very often I think it does tend to turn on increasingly turn on, um, on judgment and then with it responsibility. So I, keeping, uh, being attentive to that, um, looking for where that is happening. Uh, you know, the, the next question of course is, you know, what to do with it. And I think this obviously depends on the particular cases in point, uh, but to look for that pattern, you know, I think it's become important uh, for us as we do navigate, you know, as we try to, again, think of the general um, context, you know, where, where are the ethical challenges, where are the places where the moral life is constrained or limited, um, and where, how can we, uh, what can, can be done about that? Well, one pattern to look for, I think, is where we may, without even recognizing what is happening, um, be, be tempted to outsource judgment and responsibility in this way. Does that make sense? Yeah, the 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 pairing of responsibility and, and just judgment, I think, is a really powerful and important one, and I think also present in the way that Arendt talks about it is that uh, judgment involves some degree of risk, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? That that you effectively need to be willing to say this is wrong, I disagree, I will not participate. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that involves, yeah, a degree of, of, of risk to yourself. Judgment is not, is not easy and it is not without cost, but that does not, that's not sufficient to, to not expect it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can also see this in Arendt's career, right? Eichmann in in Jerusalem was, you know, had such a, a heavy impact upon on her her life and her standing and her relationships. But the the legacy that that argument left us with, and then also her other work, is, has been incredibly profound. But there was a cost that that she paid for it, uh, and. I think an interesting way of then thinking about this is is the way that in recent years, so we have seen discussions about ethics in relation to technology. So it's not simply that these issues are being ignored and, you know, especially the big tech companies, you know, a lot of them now have ethicists 
They are supporting diff- different initiatives, whether it's about AI th- ethics or, or having different ways of trying to address concerns. Uh, my, the latest update of my phone is, is trying to make me work better. It has, it's, it's telling me when I'm focused, supposedly. And so the, you know, the platforms that we're using uh, do seem to be trying to, to engage or talk about ethics. Um, but I have a feeling, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you might be like me in terms of being a bit suspicious when, when um, very big corporations come and tell us that they're concerned about ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's kind of two levels here, right? So one is actually the risk of outsourcing. So, okay, ethics is another, another category we need to think about. So we can add it to the list. It's a tick box. All right, previously we weren't thinking about ethical issues. Now we are. We've added a line. We tick that and then we're sorted. And the, the risk is, is effectively then that, that, that misunderstands something really fundamental about what the, the process of, of ethical reflection entails. Uh, and then I think the, the, the related concern is, is you end up with something, something like ethics light. Uh, so you have the veneer and in a way this can even get a, give a false sense of security that these issues are being addressed, um, but not in any really substantial way. Right. Yes, uh, you'll not be surprised to know that, or hear that I that I agree with that assessment. Um, and there are there are, you know a handful of things that that come to mind. Um, I was uh, speaking with a computer engineering student at, at a university here locally, and out of curiosity, I, I asked because I know that there's been a kind of a rush to, you know, inject ethics into not just corporations, but even the, 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 edu- the educational requirements of um, computer science, computer engineering, um, software programmers, et cetera. And so I, I asked about that as, you know, so are you taking, is there a tech ethics class that you take? Um, the answer is yes. It's a, it's a one hour course. Um, it's on zoom. It's a bunch of busy work. Uh, and, and I could hear in his voice kind of the disdain for, the fact that he's being asked to to do what evidently amounts to nothing more than, as you describe it, a box we could not check uh, in our graduation requirements, um, and that presumably allows the university to check some box in their you know accreditation um, standards. Uh, and and I, I suspect something very similar may be happening, um, you know, at the level of corporations. Uh, it, it definitely seems that some major corporations, uh, you know, Google comes to mind um, in the whole fiasco around the team of ethicists that they had hired um, and some are really dismissed. Um, so that that there is this, this tension between uh, any attempt to r- robustly consider the ethical ramifications of, uh, you know, technological products or services um, finally runs against uh, the you know, what are likely more powerful economic and financial incentives, um, 
which is not, I, I don't want to necessarily uh, dismiss the, the, you know, the, um, uh, the well-intentioned efforts of those who are trying to contribute um, to ethical reflection at these levels and in these situations and in these uh, contexts. Um, but I was, I was, I was struck. I'll, I'll say there was a, um, there's an article by Langdon Winner, who, who's been writing insightfully and, and critically about technology for a long time. And I think this is from the 1990s. Um, and, uh, and he, he talks about the, the, the temptation of the philosopher to be, you know, sort of tapped for, uh, this kind of service in the corporation or in government. Um, and the winner's judgment is, well, you know, of course, philosophers who, who never really feel that their work matters in the world are going to be tempted by this, this prospect, uh, but that the conditions in which their work now would unfold uh, would, would likely undermine the, um, the value of, of their contribution, however well thought out it might be. Um, I have another, more recently, my, my you know, I mean, there's this other question, right, of, of whose ethics. Um, uh, I've, I've been influenced by the work of Oster McIntyre. The title of one of his books um, from, I think, the 1980s was, you know, who's, whose ethics, whose rationality. Um, and so there is this maybe unspoken assumption that it's, it's obvious what kind of ethical principles will bring to bear. And that these are unquestioned. And it's just a matter of sort of lifting them out of one context and dropping them into another. Uh, so I think that that probably also misunderstands um, the issue in ways that will have um, undermining consequences. And, and the other question I think I would raise more recently is, is, is whether or not these efforts might better be framed as ultimately uh, a, a matter of, of tweaking the human element of a ultimately non-human techno-economic system, right? So, and, and I, I, I lean here on the work of Jacques Ellul, uh, for whom uh, this very diagnosis uh, was already evident in the 1950s. Um, and he, he spoke of uh, what is called humanizing the techniques. Uh, and, and this was already something, an ongoing effort in, in, in the 50s that he could point to. And I think it translates very well into movements for more humane technologies uh, in, the, uh, in the present, in the last 10 years. Um, and, and the idea, I think, the Lul's critique is that uh, these, these, the way he frames it is that there, there's a, a larger techno-economic system in place, and it, it re has human parts as, as a condition of its operation. Uh, and these human parts sometimes break down, right? And so we need to, we need to mine the human, in a sense, uh, but we're not minding the human for the sake of the human. Uh, we're, we're rather minding it as the part of a larger system that needs to operate on its own logic and for its own ends. Um, and so I think a lot of what may pass now, uh, you know, I, I think of, for example, um, mindfulness, the, the trend towards mindfulness apps or mindfulness retreats. Um, and, and whether, you know, this is not a matter of kind of saving the mind just enough in order to reintegrate it into a system that is, you know, fundamentally um, hostile to to its healthy operations, say, right? Um, so I, th I think that we, the 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 ethical critique needs to um, bear down more deeply upon the assumptions that order the system, the the, the economic imperatives, 
um, to which the, the technological is very often sort of subservient and, and grows in, in, in tandem with. Um, and, and, and finally sort of ask, um, I, I, I also, so, so a lot of what I do is just sort of <laughs> take the work of thinkers that have been helpful to me and just sort of help others see that and synthesize that work. So I'll mention, uh, you know, Wendell Berry and this question uh, that he um, asked in, in a well-known essay, uh, what are people for? Right. This is the the question I think we, we ultimately have to get down to. Uh, and and very often, I don't think we're, we're, we're reaching far enough or asking that question. Uh, we're, we're seeing that there are ways in which the way we've ordered society has very detrimental consequences for for human beings at various levels in various ways psychologically socially physically uh, and then we we find ways to kind of treat those symptoms without ever addressing uh, the root causes of those systems the larger structures the larger assumptions um, the larger prerogatives of, of the system as a whole and obviously it's a daunting thing to even take on uh, and and where one even begins and how how do you um you know what? What would it mean to, uh, you know, critique the whole in this way? Um, but I think those are the questions we ought to be asking. Yeah, this this also gets us back to to where we were were starting our discussion in terms of the challenges of uh, acting in conditions which are, are not of our choosing or our control, and what ethical action. Uh, can look like in in those circumstances. Uh, a couple of thoughts uh, listening to what you were saying. One, in thinking about the way that some of the big tech companies have been approaching ethics, I, I noticed a parallel with with the the way that um, previously they've sought to incorporate issues related to gender and diversity. And so you have this critique of add women and stir, mm-hmm. right? right? So the idea is you just 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 add women, and then you don't really need to think about anything else. You just okay, we need a few more women on the board. We we do that, and then the problem is solved. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like a parallel is add ethics and stir. Yes, that's right. Uh, but the point, the, the problem is that if you add ethics and stir it properly. Well then, um, it it changes the it should change the composition of of the whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm tempted to make a, a bad coffee and milk med- sort of analogy here, but I'm I'm <laughs> going to avoid that. Uh, but I think also something present in 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 your work is also this idea that the reason why you can't add ethics and stir is because it doesn't necessarily give you. A clear answer, as you said, who's ethics, mm-hmm. and so much of of what ethical reasoning entails is uh, weighing up different goods and different values, and trying to reach some some type of judgment about what is best to do, given these competing imperatives. And, uh, and I'm very uh, influenced by the tragic uh, tradition, which is one that recognizes that in certain circumstances, there are no good outcomes. There are only um, differing 
bad outcomes or differing degrees of bad outcomes. Sometimes you have um, competing goods which are valuable, which unavoidably collide. And wrestling with how you um, deal with with these competing values is is a vital part of what ethical uh, reflection entails. So we're not going to be able to get a an answer saying this is the ethical solution to you know how we should how how children should use phones or, or whatever example uh, that 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 we take. Uh, I would like to pick up where you were going with thinking about the this set of problems that emerges from humans creating a world which is not necessarily fit for human flourishing. Uh, and also the way that we've kind of had this inversion or distortion of the relationship between means and ends. So rather than human ends of for which we have technological means, this is kind of inverted where um, the technologies become the ends and then actually uh, humans become the means and then also humans are the ones that need to adjust rather than technologies. Um, and so the, the, the story that I was thinking of when I was reflecting on this, um, I'm a bit surprised no one's used it before, maybe I just haven't seen it, but um, is you know, the, the tale of Procusti's bed, right? So where you have the, um, the myth of the innkeeper and people come to stay at his inn and he forces them to sleep on his bed. But the problem is the guest never fits the bed. So he either chops off their legs or stretches them to fit the bed. And I feel this is kind of actually a very nice metaphor for thinking about this relationship because we can also think about the bed as a technology, right? Yeah. Um, I, I can just affirm that, uh, that analysis. I, 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 and, and you're right. I don't think I've seen that uh, illustration used, that illusion, um, and, it's, and it's a good one. And I think that is very much the um, the dynamic that we we experience. And I, I'll say it's it's not just the human, right? Um, it's 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 nature, if you like. Uh, you know, it's it's the world, right? Um, that remains uh, standing reserve for our 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 techno-economic projects. Um, we, you know, it's, it's hard to draw the line, you know, where, where, where are we dealing with what is essentially an, an imperative of the economic system or, or where are we dealing with something that sort of is inherent in the tool? I, I, I you know, increasingly find it difficult to draw that line. I, th I think there are ways in which the two work together and there are times where it's, it's more evidently, um, one side of that dyad, you know, shaping the overall picture. And, and in other cases, um, you know, I would say that certain tools, you know, regardless of even the economic rationality with which they're, you know, constructed or deployed, 
um, their 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 form will uh, have consequences that are unintended and and will you know lead lead down paths that were, could not have been foreseen even if if we're looking at it simply from the point of economic rationality. Um, but that that larger issue and, and and this is you know this is um uh, you know suffuses uh, Jacques Ellul's work right that we have we have lost sight of of ends uh, and so. We we just we build first and then simply say well we have to use this now uh, and and so we'll we'll use it right we've got these tools of course we're going to use it um, you know I, I think you know I'm not a software engineer but uh, it I've I've heard this narrative um, from you know, thoughtful reflective software designers that you know there there is an economic model that presents itself the app economy say. And so you just you just build to fill that space to take uh, advantage of um, the the economic opportunities that come from uh, gaining a lot of uh, eyeballs, connecting with advertising, et cetera. So the, the idea is you, you're just going to build the tool, whether that tool serves any genuine human end or not, is um, beside the point. A- asking that question. Um, is almost impossible, right? There's no space in which to even begin to ask that question. Um, and so I do think at, at, at the personal level, and um, and I know this is part of the, the tension, right? To, to navigate from, from what an individual can, can do, can, what action is proper to a person, and then the way in which there's a much larger set of structures that personal action will not necessarily turn one way or the other right but, but at that at that personal level to be willing to ask that question to think what we are doing um, and to to not thoughtlessly adopt tools that are just presented to us um, as being novel or new or revolutionary so, so to, to be able to see through the hype um, to be able to ask simply, uh, this is a Neil Postman question, right? What what problem is this technology designed to solve, right? And is that a problem I have? Uh, is that a problem that is even a problem that can be solved by a technological tool, right? So that that level of questioning um, to get at the question of ends, to at least bring the question of ends back onto the table, um, I think is important. Uh, it would it would be wonderful if we can begin to do this at a societal level, um, but, but then of, you know of course we. We, I think, run into um, the problem of competing ends and competing values. Uh, some of them chosen authentically, some of them a product of, uh, of ideology or existing social structures. And so, um, in some respects, I think this is why we fall back on um, technological means as a measure of progress. Uh, so, this is, you know, one way I would I would tell the story is that you know we have. Uh, really, uh, from from the beginning of the modern era, at least in the West, we have the problem of of competing values of the deep pluralism. Um, even though you know, from our perspective now, you know that that pluralism seems much more narrow than it may have for, for somebody living through the early modern period. But uh, it was real enough, and so we. Um, we, we built a society around the idea, and this is, again, one way of telling the story, right, around the idea of simply bracketing uh, questions of, of ultimate goods and ultimate values and uh, the meaning of the human um, and, and substance, questions of sub- substantive justice. And we, we 
fall back on what can be measured and quantified. And so the, the only value we're able to sort of assign, the only values we can uh, even bring up for consideration in the public realm are those that can be uh, adjudicated through measurement quantification, um, through a set of numeric values that um, that then are at least something concrete. Um, and, and, and deeper questions about the good, about the just, um, about meaning, uh, because they are they don't lend themselves to quantification in this way. They don't lend themselves to uh, technocratic discourse. Uh, simply get ignored, right? They can't. They don't. They don't function at that in that way. And so, and they're contentious. Uh, and so, uh, there there's just I think been a, a tendency for a very long time to to bracket them and to focus on um, what what we can measure what we can um, quantify and 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 you know um, Leo Marx, a, a great historian of technology uh, wrote about how we um, that the idea of progress, even the sort of enlightenment notions of progress become much more narrowly matters of technological progress through the 19th century. I think he's looking largely at the kind of the North Atlantic world, um, and so Britain and, and, and the United States particularly. Uh, but this tendency to reduce progress simply to the, the quality and quantity of tools that we're able to produce uh, at, at all these various levels, I think we, we do see a, um, an inversion of means and ends in the way we think and the way we uh, order society. And I and I grant you know as, as we've been saying right to 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 bring the ends back into focus uh, certainly is is not by itself a kind of solution uh, in the sense that at the social level we at the societal level to say nothing of the global uh, level um, because we've we've built now a um, you know a, a world in which there are global consequences for the systems that we've deployed um, to to be able to foreground ends. Uh, that, that certainly is challenging, uh, and, and maybe some would say um, irredeemably so, um, or incurably so. But I think it's still something that you know needs to happen. And I think again, if I come back down to the to the um, more personal level, private level, the level of the person, of the human person, I think part of what I I think I've heard or observed in the last uh, two years. Has been a willingness to ask that, to ask those questions. You know, what, why am I working in the way that I'm working? I see a lot of it sort of cropping up in the in the realm of work. Um, and again, this these these even the capacity to ask these questions, you know, I readily grant um, is is troubled by um, by existing inequalities. Right? There's you know somebody who um, uh, you know, is, is comfortably provided for, is able to ask these questions in a way that somebody who, who can only do what the, the system offers them uh, and, and doesn't have that realm of, of agent, that, that, that uh, you know, extent of agency um, may not have the luxury of taking these questions into serious considerations. And so grant, granting all of that, it does seem that at least there's a little bit more uh, willingness to, to question at a, a deeper level why we're doing things the way we are, why we're ordering our lives the way we are, uh, why we're adopting 
certain tools in the way that we are. Uh, I, I, you know, I have no illusions about how widespread that might be or how much it, you know, um, you know, it may per per persevere over time. Uh, but there are at least, I think, some indications that uh, in certain pockets, uh, I'll, I'll speak simply just for American society, that, that some are taking those questions a little bit more, more seriously, which is, um, you know, at least, you know, encouraging to some degree. Yeah, I mean, it, this certainly does feel like a growing sense or that, that things are not as they should be, right? That the way that the world is ordered, the, the way that we, we live is, is not necessarily one you know, which is bringing out the best individually or collectively, and that may not be fully articulated by by many people, but there, I think there is a sort of sense of you know, th things are not um, functioning and working as 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 they should or could be, and uh, yeah, maybe just more on on individual levels, a sense of people trying to to make sense of this and also trying to figure out you know how they can respond which is precisely why i think the 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 kind of work that that you're doing and the role of uh commentators writers scholars i think is also to help and provide conditions to assist people looking for ways of thinking differently and trying to make sense of, of, of what is going on. Uh, and uh, certainly those of us who, who work in an academic field or who um, are involved with, 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 with writing and, and news, maybe we have uh, tools or, or frameworks which which people don't know but can help uh, uh, with, with with making sense. I think that that's where hopefully what what uh, people like yourself are doing, you know this is one small way of of trying to to contribute. So maybe I thought an interesting point to 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 raise and discuss was, we're talking about competing ends and, and the way that there's not necessarily one good and how we weigh up different values. And, and a really important observation you made was that uh, these challenges get amplified when we uh, look at this from a regional and global level. So it's, it's challenging enough uh, finding um, agreed upon uh, societal priorities um, in contemporary, um, you know, plural, diverse societies. But this only becomes more challenging when we uh, move up to a global level. And uh, yeah, here I've I've I found myself really um, uh, struck by the the way that um, the kind of the I think you call it the critical humanist approach to thinking about technology offers I think some really profound and insightful uh, frames for 
reflecting on the way that technologies uh, are shaping our interaction with the world and the way that we act and think. Um, but at the same stage, I'm, I'm kind of constantly struck by the way that this is a very uh, Western, very Christian discourse. And also in the contemporary context, the way this is translated into a very North American dialogue. And from the perspective of living and working in East Asia, in, in Japan, um, with a very different set of uh, historical and cultural traditions, uh, being in a region with, with China, South Korea, Taiwan, countries which, uh, you know, um, uh, very strongly shaped by um, digital technologies and so on, right? How do these type of ways of thinking and critiques travel, and um, to what extent are they critiquing aspects of effectively the way that um, societies coming out of Western traditions have developed vis a vis? Uh, the rest of the world. So I was hoping you could perhaps uh, talk to, to this point. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I mean, certainly in my writing, um, the the sort of nexus of thinkers that I come back to that have been important to me, we've you know obviously been speaking about some of them, Arendt, uh, Elul, um, uh, Albert Borgman, a contemporary philosopher of technology, um, a German-American, um, these are certainly working out of out of the Western tradition, and and and, and several of them explicitly out of uh, a kind of Christian theological tradition of reflection. You know, certainly true for a little, um, and and Illich, who we, we haven't uh, mentioned much at all uh, thus far, but who who looms large in my own thinking. Um, Illich is interesting. So, so there are you know two things that come to mind. You know, so on the one hand, you know, part of the the way in which the kind of, uh, of techno-economic milieu that um, has uh, colonized uh, the world in some respects, you know, emerges out of, uh, you know, a, a European context with all of, of what that entails um, regarding relations to nature, to nature um, uh, imperialism, um, you know, uh, uh, racism. There, there are various dimensions that are they're all kind of wrapped up and are there in the beginning, and, and so and now here they are spilling out as they have been right for for generations and generations, spilling out into the world. So that that the, that the critique uh, emanates out of that out of out of that point of origin. I think there's something about that that seems to make sense. But at, but I think also. Maybe the way I would approach it is, is where the solution may come from, uh, and solution is not even a word I'm necessarily comfortable with. But where where will more illuminating perspectives come from about alternative um, framing? So Illich, interestingly, comes to this point. Um, Ivan Illich was a uh, Austrian-born. Um, I'm not even sure how to just polymath, uh, social critic, um, he's a Roman Catholic priest. Um, and he, uh, he offered, I think, one of these very penetrating, deep critiques of, of Western industrialized technologies and institutions through the 70s and 80s. 
Uh, but he became um, increasingly aware, I think, of the depth of the challenge to where he even saw some of his early work as being sort of insufficient for the moment um, and missing some vital elements. So part of what he attempted to do was to travel uh, to Southeast Asia. Uh, he spent a, a, a good amount of time in India and uh, also in Japan later in his career um, and wanted at some point to learn Chinese because he thought this would give him the perspective that he needed um, on, on Western economic and technological systems and institutions. Um, and at this point, you know, he was conversant in 12 languages, but even that, you know, turned out to be a bridge too far. Um, and so what he does instead is, is to find that, that fulcrum, that, that, that point of, of contrast that can, you know, e even more deeply disclose the nature of, of Western modernity, uh, he goes backwards in time and immerses himself in the 12th century uh, in order to, to gain a vantage point, an even more critically vital vantage, vantage point. But the point that I want to raise is that he, he understood that one way to do that is to leave the Western tradition and to, and to immerse oneself, uh, oneself in another. Um, Carl Mitchum, who uh, was a uh, a friend and colleagues of a village and um, is a, a well-regarded philosopher of technology in his own right. Uh, he, and I know he has found this. He has been teaching in China over the last decade uh, and has been increasingly drawn uh, to the Chinese philosophical tradition as offering a radically different perspective on, on technology. And one, one which can not only strengthen the critique, but also show us alternatives, uh, alternative ways of, of thinking about the technological and its relationship to the human and, and its relation to the world uh, at large. So I, I think it, it, it will ultimately um, be, be important to, to hear those voices, right? To, to turn to those traditions uh, that, you know, in some respects have been dominated or uh, displaced uh, or suppressed by Western modernity uh, in, in order to begin to imagine alternatives. Illich was also very fond of um, and um, built a lot of his work in effort to defend indigenous traditions in North America, particularly in, in uh, Mexico and in Central America. Uh, and so the recognition that there are these ways of life that, uh, you know, to talk about, you know, not just individuals who have to kind of um, cut themselves to fit Western modernity, but whole traditions, whole ways of life, uh, you know, ways of relating to the world, cultural heritages uh, that are again suppressed, um, you know, and, and, and cut off, you know, from their sources in order to, um, uh, you know, allow for the progress of Western modernity. But to to then recover these, to hear these voices, uh, and and allow them to to show us even where, where our own critique is trapped by uh, the, the, you know, the original conditions of Western modernity. I, I think that's, uh, you know, immensely valuable. And I know that I, um, you know, in part inspired by, by Mitchum's comments and um, you know, I think, I think too of um, an American writer named Alan Jacobs, um, who in the new Atlantis uh, journal that I, that I think does some value, valuable work um, pointed to, uh, Chinese philosopher uh, Yuki, I believe is his name. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Uh, and his work in cosmotechnics as being uh, a wonderful resource that you know we need to become uh, attentive to. That needs to be part of our conversation. So, uh, and that's just one tradition, right? There, you know, I think 
we can probably look to certainly look to other regions of the globe uh, for similar projects that we just simply in the West have not been attentive to. Um, you know, I think, you know, from, uh, from my part, you know, we, we come from somewhere, right. We, you know, I, I start my journey somewhere. Part of that is given to me, part of that I'm not even self-reflective about at the outset. Um, and so it's what we're, you know, our, our work on Wolf as it were. Uh, and I, and I think that's, that's fine. That that's, you know, just the nature of, of being human in the world. Uh, but to be willing to hear and to to seek out these alternative perspectives, I think is certainly you know important and vital. And I, I know I haven't done that enough, um, and would you know I think I'm growing more intentional in in the desire to to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think the the points of similarity and and contrast uh, are, are really powerful, and. So, for instance, one of the thinkers you mentioned, uh, Wendell Berry, and you know what I'm always struck when I read Wendell Berry is, is I mean, it's it's basically American Zen. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so much overlap between the way that he thinks and approaches the world and and Zen Zen practice and Zen philosophy, right? And and uh, one thinker I've been influenced a lot by recently has been Tolstoy, and I find Tolstoy's uh, journey really profound and interesting. The last 10, 15 years of his life, he he basically devotes towards going through all the major uh, religious uh, cultural traditions and coming up with a kind of, he calls it, he, he still claims it's Christianity, but it's a very, it's, it's a very kind of stretched and modified version of, of Christianity. But effectively what he's trying, what he tried to do was to find points of similarity in the great uh, religious and cultural traditions. There's also a certain irony that, well, not irony, but so I, 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 definitely not an irony. But um, he spent the last, you know, decade of his life in the peak of his of powers, uh, collating a quote book, which now with Google and with all our search engines is 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 the most kind of banal thing to create. Um, but here you have somebody with this incredible intellect and learning at the height of his powers, devoting a significant chunk of his life to something which is now um, very, very kind of banal and insignificant. Um, I'm kind of quite struck by this. But, you know, the way from Tolstoy you have a recognition of these points of of similarity because yeah with with within within zen there's so much emphasis on uh, attention awareness um and there's for me there's such a obvious kind of point of overlap uh recently i was returning to the the japanese book in praise of shadows mm, yes and so there's there's the part of the book where where the author is talking about being in a restaurant in Kyoto, which used to be lit by candles, mm-hmm. but had um, switched to to using uh, electric lamps. And he was talking about the the change in experience 
of uh, moving from the the light that was produced with candles uh, and and the way that that light was one which was uh, warmer, more gentle, more more human in a way to the the stark light that uh, came came with the switch to electricity. And I mean, to continue this, I, I found reading this, I was struck by the way that, you know, here this author is talking about the, the way that candles fit much better with, with the Japanese aesthetic. And, and now in Japan, there are fluorescent lights everywhere and they're far more common than, um, than, than in, than, than in uh, say, North America. And fluorescent lights are incredibly not humane. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and so you can also have the way these technologies actually, um, you know, be adopted and, and work differently. So it's not. I think it's not as as kind of simple as saying different culture will have a different set of practices because actually some of these technologies do play out in 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 similar or parallel ways. But there are interesting points of of similarity, but then also contrasts. And and here, again, I'm just struck by this lack of engagement especially with china yeah. because here you have the the biggest population in, in in the world is you know basically the second most important country in terms of technological development um this this incredible culture and history and set of traditions um, which is such an incredible and powerful force and for us to think about the role of technology in the world at the moment, I, I feel like this has to engage more seriously with um, the way that it is working and, and shaping in, in the context of, of China and, and East Asia. And I think as you're saying, the challenge for us is we're coming out of a set of cultures and traditions which push us towards resources that are comfortable and make sense for us uh you know so likewise we start by me quoting a dorno on a rent uh and so these are these are uh, um, people that i very much turn to uh, as well but the the challenge is that this means uh, i think we're maybe uh, missing out on on contrasts and also points of similarity, which I think can really open up uh, different ways of, of thinking about these issues. Uh, so perhaps we're getting here to maybe one way of thinking in terms of ways forward. One way is perhaps being more aware of different conceptions for the good, also the way that different histories, cultures, religions provide different points of reference, different similarities and different contrasts. Uh, you also mentioned the way that uh, perhaps in recent years there's a growing desire or willingness to examine the way that um, technology is, is shaping our engagement with the world. So what are some other 
sort of promising leads or, or ways that you think perhaps that individually or collectively we we can think about trying to rectify some of these uh, conditions that uh, impede or limit our abilities to pursue the good life. I mean, earlier you um, you you described uh, generously. I think you know the what might be the value of the work of people who write uh, in, in my vein, which is that you you, you try to give um, maybe a language to what some people may intuit. You know, I, I find this is a kind of a rewarding. Um, uh, and a recurring experience for me if I'm, if I'm doing a talk somewhere and uh, have somebody uh, say that, oh, you know, I, I, I had the sense that something was off, but you've given me words to better understand what, you know, what, what was off or, or you know, why. Uh, and I think there's, I, I hope that's valuable. Um, you know, I think it is. Uh, and so I, I've been uh, to some degree kind of content to uh, play that role, right? And with with the idea that perhaps somebody can then take take uh, some of these insights uh, and apply it in their own realm, in their own sphere. Um, you know, if if we're kind of all pointing towards something, they may be able to take take a baton, as it were, and, and take it to places or do something with it that I cannot do. Uh, you know, I've been encouraged uh, by some younger technologists that I've been in touch with over the past year or two. Uh, who I think have understood the the deeper critique um, and want to move beyond uh, simply putting, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, very, very minor sort of ethical patches on uh, these very large moral issues um, and who want to uh, ask about what, because I think the, you know, many cases the answer in some well, in some cases the answer may be you know we don't we don't need a technological solution here, right? Or or what the problem is not um, that we need a better version of this existing technology. You know, in some cases I think the answer may simply be non-technological, right? But we will need technology. You know, I think you know I, I try to always frame my comments uh, in terms of of. Um, of not being anti-technological, right? Uh, but rather to ask what, what is the what is the better technological configuration, right? What are the tools that are are fit for us um, that address human ends, um, you know, et cetera. Uh, Illich talks about convivial tools as opposed to industrial tools, so that there's this positive model you're working forward to, looking uh, working towards. Uh, and, and so I've been encouraged by um, again, as I say, these younger technologists that I've, I've been in conversation with, who have in some cases formed uh, networks um, that, that seem vital and engaging, and uh, and and they're wanting to you know develop technologies, work towards uh, technological systems that. Um, more seriously address the kinds of issues that I think we've we've been talking about, and so that's encouraging. That's something I could not do. I'm not a technologist. I'm not going to suddenly become an engineer and design better tools. But but if if this uh, critical analysis of of technology and the human then inspires those who who will build you know next generation of tools, I think you know that's that's wonderful and good, and uh, I'm I'm eager to see what comes of it. Um, and even in your your own comments just now, um, it reminded me on the one hand that I have a, a reader of my newsletter, an older American professor, uh, who uh, you know will occasionally uh, send me an email to the effect of what you just wrote reminded me of the Zen master dot 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 right, and so that there is this um, 
the sense of maybe maybe I'm, I'm trying to articulate uh, the kind of vision I think that you've put before me, which is that um, we we want diversity and we ought to seek it uh, in the ways that we've been discussing, but that one outcome of that may be that we find some common human threads um, and that 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 just the recovery of that uh, itself right that that what is in inhumane an inhumane technosocial configuration in a North Atlantic setting may be similarly inhumane uh, in a Southeast Asian setting um, or in an African setting um, and that you know curiously it may be through the uh, sort of, in this sense, anti-humanist tendencies of, of modern technology that we learn to recover a common humanity. Um, the, the the writer you cited in praise of who wrote in praise of shadows. I I cited a, a line or two from his work when I wrote about the loss of the of the starry sky in urban modern settings. Um, I think it was in the beginning of 2021 that I wrote that, um, and and I re- it recalled a passage in. Ray Bradbury's uh, Fahrenheit 451, uh, in which he describes this touching scene where um, before electric lights had displaced the candle, and he describes the candle in a very similar way that you just did, right, in, in as, a, as a gathering rather than dispersing light, right, as a light that kind of gathers people together. Um, and so that, that these have, we hear echoes of this across cultures, right, that there is this older way of being human in the world that um, on the surface has, has many um, diverges in many important ways, and I, I wouldn't want to minimize those, but that underlying it is some wisdom about what it means to be human, the, the frailty of the human condition, its limits, and how we can flourish in acknowledgement of those, uh, and even in celebration of those. This is obviously Wendell Berry, a very, very prominent theme in Wendell Berry's work. Um, uh, and, and so I, I don't know, I, um, that 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 suddenly struck me as a very a meaningful and important possibility, um, one that I'll certainly be bearing in mind. You know. Yeah, I mean, I just found this so profoundly in, in Tolstoy, the way that he was really actively, and, and so he was, you know, very firmly um, trying to stay within his Christian tradition, mm-hmm. but he was doing so in such an open way that he was willing and able to see all these points of parallel. One thing which, which really struck me quite strongly recently is reflecting upon when I first came to Japan and was unable to speak any Japanese or read any Japanese. And I found being and living in Japan incredibly powerful in terms of the impact it had upon the way that I was thinking about the world and myself. And it's only really recently that I realized potentially a big part of that was because I could not read or understand all the noise and all the signs that I was seeing and hearing around me. This was removing this 
you know, all of these sources of distraction and things that were trying to take attention. And actually, this, my inability to understand the language was this incredibly powerful filter which removed all of this audiovisual noise from my existence, which then created all this space. And I've had this strange feeling of, as I've been learning Japanese, sitting on the train and suddenly reading or hearing and losing, losing that barrier and losing that filter and realizing actually I'm losing something powerful. But then the, the flip side is that obviously for, for Japanese speakers living in Japan, they're being bombarded with audio and visual input in the same way that, 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 that we are in, in our um, English language context. And so in this point, a lot of the challenges that they are uh, are facing uh, are similar. And so I think this is also why there's, I'm so interested in, in kind of thinking about it across these different perspectives because I feel like we're, we're, we're collectively really missing out on, um, uh, you know, strengthening the, the kind of the, the, the ideas and the discussions that we are having. Because you know, this is not simply Wendell Berry speaking out in the wilderness. This is Wendell Berry uh, engaging and talking about things which uh, are incredibly powerful and prominent, um, have very, very long histories and traditions and, 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 and ways of thought. A separate idea uh, which I had uh, is you talked also... Uh, about the way that you're working or talking or engaging with, um, you know, some younger generations of, of people engaged in technology. And I'm wondering also to what extent, and maybe I'm over-exaggerating, but people roughly of our generation maybe have a unique or distinctive role to play insofar as we have come of age on this moment of transformation in terms of the development of, of the internet and all the communication technologies which have flowed from that. So for us, we uh, know what a pre-internet world is and you know we are part of a... Uh, uh, eventually dying generation of people who've lived in a world without that connectivity. And this means that our set of experiences and perspective is fundamentally different from those who have been uh, born uh, in, in a world of, of the internet and digital technologies. So I wonder if also we have a unique role to play uh, from that that perspective, thinking about it in terms of, 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 of time and generation. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to exaggerate this too much either, but but I think I think so. I think inevitably so. Um, you know, the just the 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 lived experience, the memory of the lived experience um, is incommunicable, right? I, I can read about what it was like in you know pre-industrial England or whatever, but um, that's very different from 
having grown up in that milieu, knowing it firsthand, having my my um, perception of the world ch- ch- you know, shaped by it. Uh, and so I've, I've thought about uh, this very thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I have a very clear memory of when, um, you know, I was in high school, I think, and we kind of uh, connected to, to AOL uh, for the first time, right? Dial-up internet. Um, and, and, and the fact that I, you know, I, I can remember what it was like, you know, even, you know, pre, pre-smartphone, right? The internet is one thing, the smartphone takes that to another uh, degree of ubiquity. Um, I think, I think that that is important. It, 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 it's, it goes back to that point of contrast. Um, we have something against which to weigh the conditions of of modern life, and and those that grow up um, in that only in that context, and and you know what I think would find it harder to um, to become critical, perhaps, uh, or or to have some sense of of what has been lost in the transition. You know, I think survivorship bias weighs very heavily in how we evaluate technology. Um, you know, we, we, there's this kind of recurring trope in some circles about how, well, you know, people complained about technology X, Y, and C in, in, you know, 1870 or whatever, but here we are. Right. And, and so the idea is that, well, obviously the, 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 the complaints or the critiques or the concerns were ill-founded. Um, but I think, and to some degree, maybe they were, um, but I think the other, the other possibility is that um, we simply no longer can reckon with what was lost uh, or, or, or are capable of valuing it in the way that the generation that lost it, you know, could. Uh, and then in other ways, you know, I think the, their critique remains um, important and, vi- and, and, and vital in the sense that, um, you know, as, as uh, communities in which individuals in that Orentian sense could appear and be known and act, um, uh, disappeared and were dispersed, and we became sort of the, the anonymous individuals of mass society. Uh, and now we're we're still those same as you know individuals, except now we're kind of connected uh, through digital technologies. And maybe uh, that that promise to alleviate the alienation, but in some respects um, may have only added a more combustible, um, uh, you know, some some more you know some more combustible agent into the whole dynamic. Um, while perhaps also to some degree alleviating uh, the loneliness and anonymity, uh, but but that you know that is to say that 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 critique wasn't proven wrong yet, just because we sort of got used to the situation right or acclimated to it. Um, you know the the idea that people are resilient, they acclimate to new to new conditions, um, doesn't necessarily speak to the uh, goodness of those conditions or the just you know the justness of those conditions. Yeah. So, so right. The perspective I think is, is important. I've thought about that. Yeah. And that gets us back to attentiveness, to, to judgment, to thought. Mm-hmm. So being aware and conscious mm-hmm. of, of these um, situations. So as a, to, to finish there's, there's, and I, I, I'm, as we're getting towards the end of the conversation, I have been trying to, to think about these questions of, yeah, what we can do, how we can mm-hmm. think and engage, and we've we've talked about some some of these ways. One thing we haven't discussed, which I do want to finish on, is you pointed to the way that Illich talked about convivial tools, and I think also really important for Illich was the role of friendship, and also the role of 
surprise. Mm-hmm. And these strike me as really important uh, ideas and ideals to, to search for. So could you maybe talk a little bit about how you think about these um, as resources or, or ways of... Yeah. Um, so when when I talk about these matters again, and we've sort of been discussing the... Well, from what my perspective, I would say sometimes appear to be the, the inadequate uh, scale of what, what I end up commending given the scale of our problems, right? And so uh, there, there's almost a kind of foolishness, I think. Uh, one might read a kind of foolishness in it. Um, and I, I think increasingly I'm I'm thinking that maybe maybe it's foolish to think that we, we don't need to start at this fundamental level um, where we simply need to uh, recover some sense of our, our shared humanity. Um, for, for Illich, I think this increasingly towards the tail end of his life happened in the face-to-face encounter. Um, and he has a, a lovely passage in one talk that he gave where he uh, talks about how, you know, the, the, the pursuit of, of truth can only happen in the context of, um, of, of where trust can flourish and eventually even friendship. Um, and he, I think it's there, maybe it's elsewhere where he also, you know, talks about reversing, um, you know how friendship is the 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 aim of politics in the Greek tradition, and, and that needs to, in some respects, be inverted. Um, friendship now has to become the foundation. Uh, in any case, I, th- I think that speaks even to the um, the question of of loneliness, um, the recovery of of, of human scale relationships. Um, so I think that that's a profound emphasis. I I, I can't say enough about that. Um, and the so the question of, of surprise, um, this gets back to the issue of, of risk, I think. I think Illich was very clear-sighted about the fact that um, some of the ways of life he was commending, which entailed uh, a, a refusal to, 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 to uh, manage human existence, to... Um, engineer it, perhaps we might say, uh, I, you know, I would say to optimize it, uh, to, to control, to seek for mastery, that these have been such important themes in, uh, in the story of Western modernity, the Western kind of techno-scientific project. Uh, and and Illich is, is aware that, you know, I think rightly that if we are to make any progress uh, to heal, to repair um, what has gone wrong, then it will necessarily entail a degree of risk, um, a, a degree of, of uncertainty, an acceptance of, of uncertainty, right? You know, epistemic limits, limits to our power, uh, or how we think we might be able to project our power, and and this openness. So this this is where this idea of the openness to surprise comes in, um, and and that we we are intolerant of this to some degree. Uh, and I, I think I find interesting echoes here with Arendt, um, uh, you know, in the sense that you know she talks about how in the modern world we uh, we th- we think that we can know only what we make, and we tr- we trust ourselves only to what we have made, and whatever we have not made, it almost becomes a hostile environment for us. Um, the, what she calls, you know, secularly speaking, the gift from nowhere of human existence that we seek to master. Um, 
and 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 of uh, Harmut Rosa's um, contrast between you know control and resonance, and that if we seek to control our experience too much, we will uh, actually eliminate the possibility of finding resonance, right? Meaningful relationships, you know, life-giving encounters with the world and with others, um, and so. You know, in some respects, I think some have said, um, you know, David Cayley says this somewhere that uh, Illich's language of surprise was a, a way of speaking uh, about what in the Christian tradition is grace and openness to the gift, uh, to receive the gift and not to seek to master it, uh, the, the world, right? But to see the world as a gift. And this is, you know, Wendell Berry's line in one of his Sabbath poems, right? That, that, that we live the given life, not the planned, uh, articulates that so well, right? And that, that that's a conscious choice that we need to make. Um, so those those are, are, I think, themes that are, are vital and life-giving, and I, I'm pretty sure I won't stop thinking about them uh, for as long as I work on, on these issues or write about it or think about it, because I think they do tend to go very much to the heart of, of the matter for us. And that that's a, a really perfect point to finish, because what you're talking to, again, uh, are ideas which transcend uh, yeah. Christian tradition, transcend Western culture, and you can identify very strong parallels in, in, in you know, Zen and Buddhism in terms of um, uh, understanding and accepting the world as it is and um, also being open to that world, quietening your thought, quiet, quietening uh, your mind and being open to to these outside forces in this outside world, which is beyond and beyond your control, um, and so I think we we end up with with uh, these 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 powerful sets of ideas related to responsibility and judgment and attentiveness and um, uh, reflection on self and the world and and the good life, which. Um, there are points of powerful difference, but also powerful uh, similarity and overlap across different cultures and traditions. So maybe one of the things we need to be working more upon is is thinking about uh, not only looking to our own pasts for challenging our certainties, but also looking across different traditions and cultures for points of contrast and similarity. Absolutely. Yes, definitely. Well Perfect. So thank you very much. We'll, we'll finish there. So I really appreciate you, you taking the time to speak with me, Michael. Yeah, really a uh, wonderful conversation uh, and always life-giving for me to speak to somebody else who is thinking along similar paths. That was my conversation with L.M. Sarkassus, recorded in March 2022. It has been produced with the support from a grant by the Toshiba International Foundation and was edited by Peter Van Hosen. Please subscribe to the Imperfect World podcast series and make sure to check other conversations. For more information, see my website, christopherhobson.net and my substack, imperfectnotes.substack.com. My email is info.hobson at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Imperfect World with Christopher Hobson. Imperfect World.